Hello, and welcome back to the Very Hairy Podcast. I am your reader, Talon, and let's get started. Since you guys all liked Tales of Beelzebub, Bard, I thought I would read another story from it, which is called The Fountain of Fair Fortune. Tales of Beatles the Bard by J.K. Rowling, commentary about by Albus Dumbledore, and translated from Ancient Runes by Hermione Granger. Story 2. The Fountain of Fair Fortune. High on a hill in an enchanted garden, enclosed by tall walls and protected by strong magic, flowed the Fountain of Fair Fortune. Once a year, between the hours of sunrise and sunset on the longest day, a single unfortunate was given the chance to fight their way to the fountain, to bathe in its waters, and receive fair fortune for everyone. On the appointed day, hundreds of people traveled from all over the kingdom to reach the garden walls before dawn, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, of magical means and without. They gathered in the darkness, each hoping that they would be the one to gain entrance to the garden. Three witches, each with their burden of woe, met the outskirts of the crowd and told one another their sorrows as they waited for sunrise. The first, named Asha, was sick of a of a malady no healer could, could cure. She hoped that the fountain would banish her symptoms and grant her, long, her a long, happy life. The second, by name of Athena, had been robbed of her home, her gold, and her wand, by an evil sorcerer, she hoped that the fountain might re- might relieve her of her powerlessness and poverty. The third, named Amata, had been deserted by a man whom she had loved dearly, and she thought her heart would never mend. She hoped the fountain would relieve her of her grief and longing. Pitying each other, the three women agreed that should should the chance befall them, they would unite and try to reach the fountain together. The sky was rent with the first ray of sun, and the chick of the wall opened. The crowd surged forward, each of them shrieking their claim for the fountain's venison. Creepers from the garden beyond, the sna- beyond snaked through the pressing mass and twisted themselves around the first witch, Asha. She grasped the wrist of the second witch, of the second witch Athena, who seized tight upon the robes of the third witch, Amata and Amada became caught upon the armor of a dismal-looking knight who was seated on a bone-thin horse. The creepers tugged, and the three witches threw the clink of the wall, and the knight was dragged off his steed after them. The furious screams of the, dis- of the disappointed throw- throng rose up, in- rose up upon the morning air, then fell silent as the garden walls sealed once more. Asha and Theta were angry with Amada, who had accidentally brought along the night. Only one can bathe in the fountain. It will be hard enough to decide which which of us it will be without adding another. Now Sir Luckless, as the night was known in the land outside the walls, observed that these were witches and having no magic, nor any great skill at jousting or dueling with swords, nor anything that distinguished the non-magical man. 
was sure that he had no hope of speeding the three women to the fountain. He therefore declared his intention of withdrawing outside the walls again. At this, Amada became angry too. Faint heart, she chided, she chided him. Draw your sword, knight, and help us reach our goal. And so the three witches and the forlorn knight ventured forth into the enchanted garden, where rare herbs, fruit, and flowers grew in abundance on either side of the sunlit pass. They met no obstacle until they reached the foot of the hill which the fountain stood. There, however, wrapped around the base of the hill was a monstrous white worm. Beloated and blind at their approach, it turned a foul face upon them and uttered the following words. Pay me the proof of your pang. Sir Luckless drew his sword and attempted to kill the beast, but his blade snapped. Then Athena cast rocks at the worm, while Asha and Amada essayed every spell that might subdue or entrance it, and trance it. But the power of their wands were no more effective than the friend's stone, than their friend's stone, or the knight's steel. The worm would not let them pass. The sun rose higher and higher in the sky, and Asha, despairing, began to weep. Then the great worm placed its face upon hers and drank the tears from her cheeks. Its thirst augusted, the worm slithered aside and vanished into a hole in the ground. Rejoicing at the worm's disappearance, the three witches in the night began to climb the hill, sure that they would reach the fountain before noon. Halfway up the steep slope, however, they came across words cut into the ground before them. Pay me the fruit of your labors. Sir Luckless took out his only coin and placed it upon the grassy hillside, but it rolled away and was lost. The three witches and the knight continued to climb, but though they walked for hours more, they advanced not a step. The summit came no nearer, and still the inscription lay in the earth before them. All were discouraged as the sun rose over their heads and began to sink towards the far horizon. Then Athita walked faster and harder than any of them, and hoarded the others to follow her example, though she moved no further up the enchanted hill. "'Courage, friends, do not yield!' she cried, wiping the sweat from her brow. As the drops fell glittering onto the earth, the inscription blocking their path vanished, and they found that they were able to move upwards once again, once, again, once more. Delighted by the removal of the second obstacle, they hurried towards the summit as fast as they could until they glimpsed the fountain, glittering like, like a crystal in a bower of flowers and trees. Before they could reach it, however, they came to a stream that ran around the hilltop, bearing their, bearing their way. In depths of the clear water lay smooth stone, bearing words, Pay me the treasure of your past. Sir Luckless attempted to float across the stream on his shield, but it sank. The three witches pulled him from the water and tried to leap the brook themselves, but it would not let them cross. And all the while the sun was sinking lower in the sky, 
till they fell to pondering the meaning of the stone's message, and Amato was the first to understand. Taking her wand, she drew from her mind all the memories of happy times she had had spent with her vanished lover and dropped them into the rushing waters. The stream swept them away, and the stepping stones appeared, and the three witches and the knight were able to pass at last onto the summit of the hill. The fountain shimmered before them, set amidst the herbs and flowers, rarer than, and more beautiful than they had seen yet. The sky burned ruby, and it was time to decide which of them would bathe. Before they could make it a, their decision, however, frail Asha fell on the ground. Exhausted by the stroll to the summit, she was close to death. Her three friends would have carried her to the fountain, but Asha was in mortal agony and begged them not and begged them not to touch her. Then Athita hastened to pick all those herbs she thought was most hopeful and mixed them in, in Sir Luckless's gourd of water and poured the potion into Asha's mouth. At once, Asha was able to stand. What was more, all her symptoms of dread and malady had vanished. I'm cured, she cried. I have no need to of the fountain. Let Athita bathe. But Athita was busy collecting more herbs in her paint in her in her apron. If I can cure this disease, I shall earn gold plenty. Let Amata bathe. Sir Luckless bowed and gestured Amata towards the fountain, but she shook her head. The stream had washed away all a regret for her lover, and she saw now that he had been cruel and faithless, and that. It was happiness it was happiness enough to be rid of her. Good sir, you must bathe as a reward for all your chivalry, she told Sir Luckless. So the knight clinked forth, and in the last rays of the setting sun in the last rays of the setting sun, and bathed in the fountain of fair fortune, astonished that he was chosen one of hundreds and giddy with his incredible luck. As the sun fell below the horizon, Sir Luckless emerged from the waters with the glory of his triumph up upon him, and flung himself into the in his rusted armor at the feet of Amata, who was the kindest and most beautiful woman he had ever beheld. Flushed with success, he begged for her hand and heart, and Amata, no less delighted, realized that she had found a man worthy of them. The three witches of the night set off down the hill together, arm in arm, and all four. And all four led long, happy lives, and none of them ever knew or suspected that the fountain's waters carried no enchantment at all. Okay, so I know I didn't do commentary last time, but I thought I would I would do it this time. So here we go. Commentary with Albus Dumbledore on the Fountain of Fair Fortune. The Fountain of Fair Fortune is a Perennial favorite, so much, so much so that it was the subject of the sole attempt to introduce a Christmas pantomime to Hogwarts festive celebrations. Then our herbology master, Professor Herbert Barry, Professor Barry, eventually left Hogwarts to teach at WADA, Wizarding Academy of Dramatic Arts where he once confessed to me he maintained a strong aversion 
to mounting performance, performances of this particular story, believing, believing it to be unlucky. An enthusiastic then our herbology master, Professor Herbert Berry, an enthusiastic devotee to amateur dramatics, proposed an adaption to this well-beloved children's tale, a yuletide treat for staff and students. I was then a young transfiguration teacher, and Herbert assigned me to specific to special effects, which included providing a fully functioning fountain of fair fortune and a miniature grassy hill, up which are three heroines and our three hero, heroines and hero would appear to march while it sank slowly into into the stage and out of sight i think i may say without vanity that both my fountain and my hill performed the parts allotted to them with with simple goodwill alas that same Oh, I lost my place. I'm sorry. Um, let me find it. Allotted to them with simple goodwill. Alas, that same could not be said of the rest of the cast. Ignoring for a moment the antics of, of the gigantic worm provided by our care of magical creatures teacher, Professor Sylvanus Kettleburn, the human element provided disastrous to the show. Professor Barry, in the role of his rector, had been dangerously oblivious to the emotional entanglements seething under his very nose. Little did he know that the students playing Amada and Sir Lethus had been boyfriend and girlfriend until one hour before the curtain rose, at which point Sir Lethus transferred his affections to Asha. Suffice it to say that our secrets... After that, our seekers after fair fortune never made it to the top of the hill. The curtains had barely risen when Professor Kettleburn's worm now revealed to be an ashwinder. See in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them for a, for a definitive description of the curious beast. It ought to have never voluntarily introduced to a wood paneled room, nor have an engorgement charm placed on it with an engorgement turn upon it, exploded in a shower of hot sparks and dust, filling the great hall with smoke and fragments of scenery, while the enormous fiery eggs had laid at the foot of the hill, ignited the floorboard the floorboards. Amada and Asha turned upon each other each other, dueling so fiercely that Professor Barry was caught in a crossfire in the crossfire, and staff had to evacuate the hall. As the inferno was now ra raging on stage, threatened to engulf the place. The night's entertainment concluded with a packed hospital wing, and several months before the great hall lost its, it was several months before the great hall lost its pungent aroma of wood smoke, and even longer before Pres Professor Barry's head resumed its normal proportions. Professor Kettleburn survived no fewer than 62 periods of probation during his employment of care of magical creatures teacher. His relations with my professor at Hogwarts, Professor Dippet, were always strained. Professor Dippet, considering him to be somewhat reckless, 
by the time considering him to be somewhat reckless. By the time I became headmaster, however, Professor Kettleborn had mellowed considerably, although there were always those who took the clinical view that there that with only one and a half of his original limbs remaining to him, he was forced to take a life at a quieter pace. Okay, so Headmaster Armando Dippet imposed a blanket imposed a blanket ban on future pandemoniums. A proud non-theatrical tradition at Hogwarts continues to this day. Our dramatic fiasco with non-withstanding fiasco, non-withstanding the Fountain of Fair Fortune is probably the most popular of Beatles tales. Although, just like the wizard in the hopping pot, it it has its directors, directorial, directors. More than one patient has demanded the removal of the particular tale from the Hogwarts library, including, by coincidence, a descendant of, of Brutus Malfoy and the one-time member of the Hogwarts Board of Governors, Mr. Lucius Malfoy. Mr. Malfoy submitted his demand for the ban of the story in writing. Any work of fiction or non-fiction that despites interbreeding between wizards and muggles should be banned from the bookshelves of Hogwarts. I do not wish for my son to be influenced into sullying the purity of, of his bloodline by reading stories that promote wizard-muggle marriage. That was Lucius Malfoy's uh, letter, by the way. My refusal to remove the book from the library was backed by a majority of the board governors. I wrote back to Mr. Malfoy explaining my decision. So-called pure-blood families maintain their alleged purity by disowning, banishing, or lying about muggles or muggle-borns on their family, on their family trees, and then attempt to foist their high Hyporacy upon the rest of us being asked by asking us to ban works dealing with the truths they deny. There is not a witch or wizard in existence whose blood has not been mingle, mingled with that of a muggle, and I should therefore consider both illogical and immoral to remove works dealing with the subject from our students' store of knowledge. My response promoted several further letters from Mr. Malfoy, but as they consisted mainly of of previous remarks on my sanity, parentage, and hygiene, their revelance their revelance to this commentary is remote. This exchange marked the beginning of Mr. Malfoy's long campaign to have me removed from the post of headmaster of, as headmaster of Hogwarts and this of mine to have him removed from his position as Lord Voldemort's favorite Death Eater. And that's all for the commentary. This has been the Very Harry Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye.